Good evening and welcome to this Forum for European Philosophy event, Is Politics uh, Based on Morality? And to guide us through this question, we're delighted to have Geoffrey Hawthorne, who is Professor Emeritus of International Politics at Cambridge University. Geoffrey has written on a very wide range of subjects from Thucydides' political philosophy through to the sociology of human fertility. And he's also the editor of a collection of essays by the philosopher Bernard Williams, which has particular relevance to tonight's topic, being entitled, In the Beginning Was the Deed, Realism and Moralism in Political Argument. Geoffrey is joined uh, by Catherine Rowett, who is Green Party candidate for South Norfolk and professor in philosophy at the University of East Anglia. Fabienne Peter, who is Associate Professor in Philosophy at the University of Warwick, and Stephen DeVazer, who is Senior Lecturer in Political Philosophy at the University of Manchester. Please join me in welcoming our panel. This is to be a conversation about the relation between morals and politics. The direction of the conversation is, in part, up to others on the platform and, of course, to you. But it might start from a distinction which has become much talked about by those interested in political philosophy and in politics, the study of politics, the analysis of politics more generally, a distinction that Bernard Williams made between two positions. A position in which the moral takes priority over the political, either by setting out moral conditions of coexistence under which power is exercised so to speak designing the politics intellectually before the politics begins a position in which the moral takes priority over the political that or the moral taking priority over politics by formulating principles, concepts, ideals, values, which it's the task of politics already established to express or enact. A distinction between one or other of those positions in which the moral takes priority and the position which gives what he called a greater autonomy to distinctively political thinking. The distinction, in his words, between a political moralism and a political realism. As I said at the start, maybe a distinction that in an hour and a half's time we've abandoned, but at least it's a place to begin. What's real in this conception of political realism is that it starts from where we actually are in historically generated politics. 
It may start, indeed, to use a phrase of Williams, now and around here, in this place, broadly considered, at this time, as it's come to be political, and work out from there. Political moralism, one might say, is not absent from political discussion, of course, but in this view, it's a luxury that becomes possible only when the first conditions of politics are met. That's to say, when people cease to, to fear, not least each other, have a legitimate government and can begin, once they have those elementary securities, to think of better things. Now, one might suppose that political realism establishing the grounds of politics is a matter only for the Iraqs and the Syrias and the Libyas of the moment. But it's not. There are different kinds and degrees of fear everywhere. And in this view, there's always the possibility of the fear of fear. Now, if one accepts this kind of distinction, thinking about politics by starting with the morals, or thinking about politics by starting with the politics, there are questions. And let me suggest a few, again, which might all, or in part, or perhaps very quickly not at all, be pursued in this conversation. It is, as I said at the beginning, an open conversation. But the questions might be questions about what matters in a modern nation-state like ours now and around here. The first question might be, can we actually be said to have met the first political conditions? And if we have, do we therefore have the luxury of being political moralists? And if we do have the luxury of being political moralists, do we think about morality as in some sense a system of connected beliefs? Or is it a disconnected, unevenly distributed, often conflicting, clashing mosaic? It's possible that we may answer that we haven't met all the first conditions of politics, even in a state like this one. And even if we have, and proceed to moral considerations, the idea of a morality system is a mistake, perhaps even a dangerous mistake. These questions apart, there's another. Do we think of ourselves as political, when we think of ourselves as political moralists, accepting a distinction, again, which Williams makes, between what he, what he calls thick and thin ethical commitments. By that he means very general commitments, for example, to trust or to justice, the content of which will vary enormously according to time, place, condition, circumstance, etc., Thick commitments 
are much more particular. Commitments to a particular place, commitments to a particular set of people, commitments to more uh, particular kinds of action. And there's a question, an empirical question, a sociological question, if you like, how these commitments are distributed within a nation-state. And then there's the question of who and what, in a morally plural nation-state, at least partially plural nation-state like this one, who and what has moral agency? And what kind of authority to those who have moral agency have? What kind of authority can be accepted? Is it politicians? Is it the judiciary? Is it religious bodies? Is it thinkers and writers? Who are the moral agents in the society? What kind of authority do they have? And what are the relations between the, the ethics themselves and these agents and what we uh, might wish these relations to be. And then there's the question of what bearing, if any, the answers to these uh, questions themselves, what bearing they have on the legitimacy of a nation-state. For example, a thick constituency that whose commitments are to a particular history in a particular place, attended by uh, self-consciously uh, celebrated particular culture, might want its own political jurisdiction, even if it's committed to the same uh, more general commitments as neighboring communities or places. And that raises the question of, as it were, an ethical political federalism. One only has to think of Northern Ireland or Scotland, even perhaps Wales, if not Cornwall, in this country. And then, to the extent to which one doesn't put the moral prior to politics, there's the question of, as philosophers often refer to it, the question of dirty hands, of what one has to do to solve the questions of politics. Is this purely a political question, or does it have ethical implications? And if it has ethical implications, what are they? What kind of dirty hands can we accept, and when, and why? So there we are. It's a broad canvas, as I say, for us this evening to start to draw on. Is there a distinction between political moralism and political realism? <clears throat> How might we think further about this distinction? What are the consequences of taking one position or another for how we think about actual politics now and around here? Who are the agents of morality in general and in politics, if there's a place for morality in politics, and so on. I've said enough.
others should take their view. And I should say, before we start, I'll turn to uh, one of uh, my colleagues first, but I should say that we'll stop every so often for questions, exclamations, disagreements, uh, riotous affirmation, whatever uh, you're disposed to. But Catherine, perhaps you'd like to begin. Okay, so um, I, I feel a bit of a fraud here, really, because um, I'm not uh, an expert in political theory. I do a bit of ancient political theory, but I'm basically an ancient philosopher, and I only know about the ancient world, uh, apart from actually being currently a candidate for becoming a politician. So if you want me to think about uh, these questions about um, political theory, well, I was struck looking at um, what Bernard Williams says uh, in connection with these debates uh, by how out of date I found it. Um, and so this is a really interesting situation because he talks about um, the here and now and around here. What are we going to do from starting from now and around here. And my feeling was that now and around here for Bernard Williams was 30 years ago, and that we're not quite now and around here there anymore. Uh, and so then I was wondering what the difference is between the now and around here that uh, Williams was talking about and where we are now. This is one of the thoughts that I've had so far. Uh, and this is that... Um, in the 20th century, the thought was that liberalism was the only uh, option that you could choose uh, when you were faced with a kind of apparent dichotomy between uh, a kind of political situation that was authoritarian and that, that brought with it a kind of set of uh, fixed moral um, positions or rules uh, and then tried to impose that by some kind of uh, totalitarian or authoritarian uh, imposition, so the ancient model or the um, medieval or whatever, and then uh, replacing that uh, fear of fascism and uh, totalitarian regimes that imposed things against people's will. And what Williams works with, as far as I can see, is a dichotomy between it's either that or it's liberalism. Uh, and liberalism means... Um, uh, taking away authority and giving you um, negative freedoms. Freedoms which are just created by saying you, uh, you can do anything as long as it's not hurting other people. Uh, and that struck me as not really fitting our current situation because it doesn't seem to me that what we most fear now should be uh, authoritarianism, but rather something different. So here are my, some, some thoughts I have. It seems to me that um, you can't get legitimacy, you can't begin on the project of having legitimacy prior to a, a kind of legitimate state prior to bringing some kind of moral uh, message because a legitimate state depends upon there being there uh, citizens who are in a position to judge what they're being offered, uh, citizens who have some capacity for moral judgment. And what they have to be able to do is bring their capacity for moral judgment 
to make a judgment about what they're being offered by the um, politicians. Whether it's democracy or some other system, and I could talk more about that, but it seems to me that, let's suppose we're in a democracy, as we apparently are, um, uh, what happens is that uh, politicians will present something to the um, to the citizens for them to vote on, on the assumption that those citizens have not just a moral vacuum within which to make their decisions about what kind of society they want. And it seems to me that we're under threat from two um, risks at the moment, which are the highest dangers, it seems to me, and the things that we should fear. And one is uh, uh, an area of the citizenry that uh, expects to take its moral judgments from a kind of fundamentalism uh, where they don't think for themselves, but they are told what to think. And another area where people are not told anything about what to think and there's a moral vacuum because there's no capacity for moral judgment because they have no moral message and have never been taught any. And, and these two um, uh, things seem to me to undermine the possibility of even having a legitimate state if the people are not equipped to make moral judgments. <laughs> So it seems to me that you can't come without first addressing the question, have you created the situation in which there could be a legitimate state? And that seems to require that there is some moral understanding among the people about how they would decide what kind of society is a good one to live in. And that's not just substituting something else for moral judgment, something like the pursuit of wealth, which... Uh, steps in when you've got no moral judgments available. So my view would be that something in what Williams was talking about is now passe. Stephen. <clears throat> right. Well, I, uh, I'm going to uh, move slightly away from what was said over there uh, to bring a, a, a little bit of a different perspective. Um, as rich as that is, and I'm sure we'll get back to it, I thought a, a different model might be helpful. Um, going back to the question, should morality take priority over the political, it seems to me we can, we can look at a framework uh, to think about how this ought to be the case. There's three positions you can take. The one, if we can call it the anti-morality view, which says politics and morality just don't mix at all. It's the, it's the idea that politics is run by issues of prudence, uh, rational choice, uh, questions about ends and means, but morality just gets in the way. Uh, politics uh, is something far too serious to bring morality into when you try and make decisions. And uh, realists, uh, political realists, sometimes hold that kind of view. You could then hold almost the exact opposite view, which I will call the morality is seamless view, which says morality applies to all domains of human existence and, and politics is no different from that at all. So whatever the constraints or the duties or the requirements or the obligations we have in our private lives apply equally to our political lives. And so if it's wrong to lie in private life, it's wrong to lie in political life. If it's wrong to use violence in private life, it's wrong to do so in political life. And so there's no difference at all. Now, both of those positions seem to be problematic for various reasons. And there's a third possible way of thinking about this, and that's to think of something like a political morality, which says 
politics is a particular kind of activity, a particular domain of activity, which requires a different kind of moral understanding. So lying in politics might be acceptable under certain kinds of circumstances. In fact, not only acceptable, it might be required under certain kinds of circumstances. Here's an example. So Stafford Cripps was the Chancellor of the Exchequer in the 1950s in Britain. And he stood up in Parliament and lied about uh, the economic condition of the country and about going off the gold standard. He did this because he needed to do that to protect the economy from a kind of collapse that was going on. Now, was that the right thing to do? He lied. And in fact, his lying was accepted as somehow truthful because he was a man of great probity. But he lied because his role required him to lie in politics. Had he not been in politics, he couldn't have done that. We would have condemned him quite strongly for doing that. Now, one of the things that we, and we'll probably come on to this a bit later, and I won't say much more about that now. One of the things that happens in a political morality is if you think there is a different way for politicians to act from those outside of politics, it might bring us to the question of dirty hands. Are there circumstances where politicians will face choices where whatever they do, they've done something terribly wrong? Not only that, it's unavoidable. They are duty-bound to act in ways in which they do something terrible. And there are all sorts of examples of this uh, uh, in, in literature and in uh, movies and you know, the standard infamous uh, ticking bomb scenario where you catch somebody who's planted a bomb in the center of London and it's going to go off in 24 hours and the only way you can stop that from happening is by torturing this person. We know that torture is wrong. Civilized people never torture. But on the other hand, if you don't, there's the possibility the bomb will go off and kill many hundreds of people. If you accept such a scenario, it looks like the politicians in those cases might have to do something which we will condemn them for. They'll either authorize torture, which we know is wrong, or they won't authorize torture and people will die and they've reneged on their primary duty to protect you from dangers um, that you might be facing as a citizen of the country. So I just wanted to put out that kind of a framework for you to think about uh, and we'll come back to that, I'm sure, in some kind of questions later on. Thank you very much, Stephen. There's always a danger in this kind of occasion, uh, not from the floor but from the platform, uh, a danger that uh, is all too common, of course, in academic seminars, that the entire uh, time that one has is dedicated to constructing the agenda rather than uh, arriving at any answers. So we, we, mustn't, uh, we mustn't spend an enormous amount of time, but I think it's important to, to get a sense of the range of issues that, that we might be talking about. I gave a sketch at the beginning. Catherine has suggested that that, that sketch is predicated on perhaps calmer days of a more confident liberal democracy in Britain 30 or 40 years ago, uh, and is also perhaps conceptually a little innocent about the extent to which the state requires the capacity for moral judgment. And two more particular predicaments now, one of uh, an unmovable fundamentalism on the one hand, and a lack of moral reflection for some reason or another. On the other hand, Stephen has come with a slightly different angle that one can look at politics as wholly amoral in what I suppose in the language I used at the beginning, what might be described as a wholly realist way. Or one can look at it as a wholly moral affair in which moralism is at its heart from start to finish and never disappears. 
And a third way, uh, a distinctively political morality. Not a political moralism, but a particular set of moral rules which apply to the exercise of power uh, and making judgments. Having said what I've said about getting the agenda clear, there's one more voice that we should hear, uh, and then we can begin the arguments. Thank you. Yes, I want to follow up on the question that um, Jeffrey raised and Steve um, then added to the question of whether the morals should take priority of politics. And one might ask, well, why would anyone think not? Right? What's wrong with being moral? And my thinking about that question, and specifically the question about the relationship between morals and politics, has been much shaped by John Rawls, who I think has an interesting answer to that question of what's wrong with being moral in a political context. Um, it follows up, I think Rawls' writing is still relevant because I think um, he had very much in view one of the problems that Catherine mentioned, namely um, the problem of um, religious fundamentalism. So in my reading of roles, what's wrong with being moral, overly moral, in a political context <laughs> is that we disagree. We don't know enough about what's morally right and wrong as measured by the fact of how violently we sometimes disagree on those questions. There seem to be disagreements that defy rational deliberation. So no matter how much we try to settle moral questions within politics, we end up still disagreeing. And that's a distinctive fact of our political lives when Rawls was thinking about these questions, but probably still today. So what's wrong with being moral in a political context has ultimately an epistemic answer. It's overreaching in terms of our moral beliefs. We put too much confidence in our moral beliefs relative to how much justification they have, at least in the circumstances of politics, where we need to work with each other, where we need to shape our common lives. It's in those contexts, not necessarily in all contexts, not in necessarily in the context of our own private moral lives, that these disagreements matter. So there are two issues. One is it's an obvious fact that morals matter in people's lives. Some of those moral systems that people apply in their lives to seek guidance from are perhaps philosophical systems, consequentialists or Kantian ethics is what people might turn to to find guidance about how they ought to live, what the right thing to do is, what has value. Other people turn to religious doctrines, Catholicism, Islam, etc. Similarly, to find guidance in their lives. And people care about the moral truths they get in this way, in these diverse ways. But that's an empirical question, that moral beliefs matter to people. It's a further feature of many of those moral systems or religious doctrines that people turn to, that they aim to be, in Rawls's language, comprehensive. These doctrines aim to provide answers for all questions that arise in our moral lives. Not just, what should I have for dinner, meat or not meat, but also questions about how to relate to others, including how to relate 
to others in political context, in a context of a state. But the fact that these doctrines aim to be do- aim to be comprehensive in this sense, aim to provide answers for all questions, doesn't mean that they always re- produce justified um, answers. What is justified might depend on context. That is at least the way I think about it. That's where the epistemic issue comes in. What counts as a justified belief might vary with context and the circumstances of politics put particular pressure on the justification of some beliefs. Here's an example from a non-political context. Suppose you're tying a knot. If you're doing that just to pass the time, when the question is, is the knot correct? Is this a figure of eight? A quick glance might be sufficient to justify your belief. This is, this knot is correct. But if you're about to climb a difficult route, a quick glance might not be sufficient to justify your belief this knot is tied properly. You might want to double check. Your life hinges on it. Same goes for moral beliefs. Moral beliefs in some contexts might have a justification that they lack in other contexts. In contexts where there's a lot at stake or where there are other factors that change what's relevant in justification. I want to say, in political context where we work or have to work with each other, where we have to decide on how to live together, and we find ourselves in disagreements, these disagreements change what counts as justified, change what counts as legitimate, and that gets us to a distinctively political morality. Rawls wouldn't have used that term, but they sort of fit with Steve's picture to get to an intermediary position, a view that's neither just morals nor just politics. Thank you very much. Well, there is the landscape. And let's pause for a moment to hear whether somewhere in that landscape that between us we've sketched are the issues which you think are or perhaps aren't for us to discuss. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, in terms of um, what, what you were saying, um, it, we, we, yeah. Um, okay. I mean, your three distinctions. If you if you convert them a bit, you get um, the mechanics of management. Um, the first one. The second one, universal values. Those are the sorts of things that philosophy has been going on about for a long time. The third one you get politics as moral understanding. It's not. It's actually, it should be about understanding morality. That's, I think that's the basic issue. Because if you take morality merely as value, then the first thing from Bernard Williams would be that it would be value system imposed or value system discovered. And is it being discovered by the group of people who <coughs> understand themselves to be part of a political constitution, i.e. printing money at these days? Uh, because then the problem becomes that the problem with, say, any country printing its own money is that it's forgotten that the value system which is being imposed is the global value system, of, uh, essentially, of applied politics in that sense, mm-hmm. but it, it's got quite a strong thing. And the only other point I'd like to make is that I think it's wrong to, do, to actually confuse religion with, with um, morality. 
Because if, if you just take value, then, then religion is just an ontological setup that has mm. is a value system, and, and um, people do what they do because they have to do it. Otherwise, their values collapse. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Let's take two or three, and then we'll yes. Yes. Uh, in this uh, globalized world that we live in, you only think of the nation state. Uh, shouldn't you also take into consideration the interaction between various nation states? about how we Yes. Regardless of how we define politics in theory, but practically speaking, politics is nothing but thinking of your interest over the others. In that term, there would be a clash of interests. So then, taking that into account, taking taking what I just said to account that just clash of interests, then how can I look at politics from morality point of view? There is only one option, and that's being consequentialist. Just say, what I do now, you don't know, as you just mentioned about an example, you don't know in the long term would be more benefit. And I support my argument by referring you to current climate, what's happening, the number of countries you just mentioned yourself, Politicians, what they say is that we know what's better for them. They don't know themselves. But we know that's wrong. They're just thinking of their own interest. What's happening in the Middle East now? No one can believe that that's for the sake of the Middle Eastern people. So what I want to say is that regardless of what they say, politicians always act differently. And there's no place for morality then. (laughs) Unless we think of something else which hasn't come up yet, maybe one day. Yes. Can you give him the mic? Thank you for the talk. I think uh, the framework of politics is based on morality. Is the, fra- uh, the, the organization which really frame, uh, defines that framework is the uh, church in our society. Anything that isn't moral-based regarding a god it's kind of just ridiculed in the media. For example, the Labour Party can't even mention socialism in their own manifesto or allude to it in any kind of way without being ridiculed. And this is set up, in the, uh, as I said, in the media. And this stops people from being able to have uh, a moral. How uh, that could, be, should, could and should be defined in a society. Thank you very much. Well, there are three. So, well, one more, and then we can. In the middle. No. Yeah, my, my question's about the third of the options that uh, Stephen um, laid out. The, the idea that politics is a, a sphere of morality that's sort of distinct. I'm just wondering whether you could give us more examples of. Uh, moral sort of incidents that take place within p- 
politics and sort of the evaluation of them, the moral evaluation of those actions, um, sort of explain how it's distinct from the way that ordinary moral evaluation goes about. Um, yeah, so just to clear up the idea that it is a, a distinct sphere of moral activity. Thank you very much, Will. There are four, as, as I hear them, four really very different uh, but equally important lines of thought in what, uh, what's been said. One, not putting them in the order in which uh, we heard them, but uh, perhaps the order in which we might discuss them. One, the most radical, that politics is purely about interests and uh, how the consequences of coincident and conflicting interests play out. And therefore, a conversation which includes morality, a distinctively political morality, a general morality, any kind of ethical consideration at all is beside the point. All right. uh, I, think, I think we should say just a few things more about that. The second is insofar as uh, moral considerations do apply, the question is what their agents might be. I mean, where might the origins of moral thinking in a nation state be? What should one take seriously uh, if there is to be a moral education? Where, where is that coming from? Where one would, would one expect it to be coming from? The political class itself or something outside the political class, perhaps even the churches? Um, that's the second issue. The third issue is addressed to Stephen, what more particularly would count as political morality, an act of political morality or an act of political immorality or amorality. And then uh, the last, simply in analytical order, not importance, is the question of the context. Um, that we, <clears throat> for 2,500 years, the idea of a public morality and the nation-state have been locked together. Aristotle gave the theory, and everybody's held on to that since, uh, or held on to that, the assumption that this is an arena of morality. Maybe it isn't. Uh, this world is a world of nation-states, but it's not a world only of nation-states. It's a world of nation-states, almost all of which depend very heavily on each other. And uh, that perhaps one should think more widely, and perhaps there are different political moralities for uh, different levels of politics, different arenas of politics. So there we have it. What might the agents of, of moral thinking about politics be in this society, which leads to Catherine's question about moral education? What would be examples of distinctively political morality and not, arising from what Stephen has said? Prior to that, perhaps, Fabian, would you like to address the point that there are interests and only interests? Can I also speak to the global? Of course, and then we'll come to the global. Yes. 
So perhaps you, you, would, you would start with uh, interests and only interests, and then we'll talk about agency morality and moral education and political morality and come back to the international. Um, so with regard to the question of whether politics is only about self-interest, we first have to distinguish um, between the empirical issue, is that what describes politics accurately? And secondly, the normative issue, is that how politics should be? Should it just be an arena where we battle it out and may the strongest interests win, right, or the most powerful interests? Right? And I would say on both accounts, no, I don't quite agree with you. I don't think at the empirical, if we just focus on the empirical issue first, that it is accurate to describe politics as merely a battleground of interests. Um, one way many people think about democracy is under the label deliberative democracy. So democracy isn't just a system where we occasionally, and perhaps not, trot um, to the polling station and vote for some unappealing candidate or other, but where we um, engage in argument about what the uh, sort of things are that we should do. So um, insofar as deliberative democracy isn't perhaps just an appealing normative idea, but also a description of what's going on in a democracy, um, what characterizes a democracy isn't just voting, which perhaps might be driven by self-interest when no one's looking, but also reasoned argument. And in reasoned argument, the claim, it's just better for me, doesn't cut much weight. It doesn't, doesn't, it won't have much weight. Right? So if you want to win people over, you have to present a better argument and it's better for you. Right? You'll have to try to find common ground, explain why um, what you have in mind might be um, in the interest of all. Okay, So that's the empirical level. We seem to argue with each other and when we argue, we don't just refer to our self-interest. When it comes to the normative level, should politics just be a battleground of uh, competing interests, I would also say no. And that's for the obvious reason that many will lose out. Right? The weakest interest um, um, might uh, lose out, even though they're, um, on, uh, they may have a valid claim um, on, on how we should live together. So as a normative ideal, I would also not find it appealing. Can I Agent, come in? Agents of morality. And well, I'd, I'd also like to come in on that because it, um, p- part of what I was trying to suggest was that morality is not just about um, specific rules like do we lie or uh, uh, must, must we put um, other people's interests first and so on. Um, what I had in mind when I was talking about the fundamental moral basis of um, <laughs> politics is the thought uh, that morality is about the values that we hold dear, both collectively and individually. And I think that uh, ties in with what Fabienne was just saying, that what we look to our politicians to do is to express uh, ambitions and ideals, a vision of what the country might be, uh, and their arguments will indeed be expressed in, in terms of the virtues, of the virtues of a state and of the virtues of individuals enabling people to actually live the kind of life that people would choose to live when they look at it in a sort of um, 
overall perspective, what kind of country would we like to live in? What kind of people would we like to be? What kind of um, thing would, could we be proud of that we would fight for, that we would stand up for, and so on? So, of course, the politicians are going to put forward that because actually we're rational people and we're trying to deliberate about what kind of country we want to have. Of course, there may be some politicians who are trying to win you over by. Uh, um, offers of self-interest, tax cuts or whatever it might be that make you think you particularly will have more in your pocket. But those people are stepping outside and trying to appeal to something other than your overall perspective of what the values ought to be. Or maybe they're thinking that they have already corrupted your values to the point at which you will actually think that what gets into your pocket is the main thing we should be considering. And I'm suggesting that's not what we should be considering because we are a decent country that's trying to stand up for something like justice. So one of the things that I'm really impressed with is having studied Plato and Plato's Republic, and Plato is interested in trying to show that there is a sense of the word just that is not ambiguous or um, there are not two senses of the word just. And when we speak of a, of a just person, of a morally good person, we're using just in the same sense in which we can say that a a state or nation is just. What is it for a state or nation to be just? Uh, it's not completely different from being a morally good person. It involves good relations between that state and other states, so it's, they're not going to walk all over everybody else without considerations of justice, and they're not going to do things internally to their own citizens that constitute uh, immoral treatment, torture, etc. So they're neither going to torture the other people nor are they going to torture and exploit their own citizens. That's what I understand by justice and I take it that that's what politicians are trying to present for us, a possible vision of how this uh, nation state that you're voting for could come out as a just one. And we're being asked to consider various visions of it, and the visions are expressions of different kinds of values. Why do our values differ, and why do we disagree? Well, I think it's partly because things are not just plain black and white. We may actually have quite a lot of values in common, but we might rank them differently, and each action <coughs> won't necessarily be just either moral or immoral, or good or not good, under a certain description it may seem good and under another description it may seem not so good. Uh, so something that seems like um, uh, immodest uh, in one way might be an expression of equality or, or freedom in another way. And depending on how highly you value modesty versus uh, freedom, you might rate the same thing differently because you see it as instantiating more than one of the virtues. So if we've got a plurality of virtues and each thing that we like, we like to different degrees, it doesn't necessarily mean that we've got a totally uh, alien set of, uh, of um, uh, values among us. So we've, we've got to kind of reach some kind of community judgment that 
expresses our collective feeling about what's completely ruled out, what's completely ruled in, and where the grey areas are that we're willing to compromise in order to get the kind of state that we actually want to be in. Um, so the education will be in helping people to make moral judgments. It seems to me you're making moral judgments when you're making political judgments. You're making moral judgments about what your top priorities are. Uh, and people have got to be given chance to exercise those moral judgments in a, in a society that doesn't just say how much money you've got in your pocket is the only thing to consider. Thank you. Stephen, political morality, again. Okay. Um, can I just say one thing about uh, politics and, and morality that you raised? Because uh, that will help me segue into what I want to say about the political morality to answer your question. Um, as you can hear from my accent, I don't come from Yorkshire. Uh, I, I, I come from another part of the world where politics is of a, of a different kind altogether in terms of corruption and all the rest of it. And, and my experience of British politicians or the political class in Britain is, by and large, of people who want to do good. Uh, they're, of course, bad apples, and they're, of course, people who are there to, to feather their own nests. But by and large, I think politicians in this country try and do a good job. You might disagree with them. You might think that they get things wrong. But they're not out there to cheat everybody and to feather their own nests. Um, so so uh, that being said, um, what kind of morality should they follow? And that brings me back to the political morality story that you're asking me about. Now, there, there, there are a load of different possible examples I can use, but I'll, I'll use two just to try and illustrate. One of a fairly serious nature because it involves uh, conflict and war, and one involving coalitions. And we might even talk about what's going to happen in a couple of weeks' time, because almost certainly there's going to be some kind of horse trading. Right, so let's think about the Northern Ireland story. Recently, it was broken the news that there were a number of IRA activists who were given a pardon by Tony Blair, if you remember, and that government at that time. There was an outrage about that, that then these people were responsible for killing other people and were going to get away with it and not face justice. And there was some discussion in the newspapers, some people saying, well, they should face justice, and some people saying, no, they shouldn't, because there was a deal made. Now, from a political morality point of view, it's important to realize that one of the priorities for the Blair government and the major government before that, and then for future governments, is to try and bring peace to Northern Ireland because lots of people were dying. And to do that, they had to make shabby deals. And they had to do things which, from a point of view of absolute morality, would be considered to be unacceptable. If you murder people, you face justice. But if you're in that kind of scenario and you insist on that, you're going to end up prolonging the conflict for very much longer with many more people dying. So here's a case where those politicians, acting in terms of political morality, got dirty hands. They faced a situation where it wasn't a choice between right and wrong or good and bad. It was a choice between bad and worse. And they chose bad. Right? And it turns out that in many ways, they were vindicated. Uh, the violence has come down in Northern Ireland. People who would have died are not dying. And there wasn't justice for those people who had been killed. There's no question about that. But it's something, as a politician, you just have to grasp and go forward. That's a, that's a, a part of political morality. Here's another example, less, less dramatic. When the Lib Dems uh, went into coalition with uh, the Conservatives after the last election, they immediately reneged on their promise not to raise university fees to 9,000. There was outrage, and as you know, Nick Clegg got it in the neck in all sorts of ways over and over again. Now, I have to declare this. I'm no Lib Dem, and I don't hold a torch for Nick Clegg <laughs> at all. 
But I think that he was attacked in a way that didn't understand what politicians do. Politicians make those kinds of decisions all the time. And I'm just saying to you that look carefully in two weeks' time, because almost certainly whatever's going to happen then is going to be a deal made between politicians, which is not what they want, because there's no group that's going to be big enough to govern. The Tories will have to, if they get into government, will have to do something with UKIP and something with the DUP and something with the Lib Dems if there are any left. And Labour will have to do something with the SNP and with the Green whoever else will come in with them. And none of them are going to be happy, and all of them are going to have to compromise in some way. And you would stand there if you're an absolutely pure moralist will say, but you've reneged on this. You've done, you haven't said what you're going to do. And they can, I think, turn around to you and say, but I'm acting in terms of political morality. I've had to dirty my hands because otherwise it's just not possible to govern effectively. You just get stuck. And that's the kind of thing I'm thinking about. Thank you very much. The remaining question from that set that you gave us is the question of the arenas within which we're thinking about political action. Conventionally, political theory has assumed the nation state. Political theory of international relations is a much shakier, thinner, weaker, uh, less impressive phenomenon, and talking of political on a more local level uh, is also not something that um, differs very much from uh, arguments of other kinds. But Fabienne, the arenas of political morality. Um, So when I agree with the spirit of the question that legitimacy now, these days, should uh, be understood not just in national terms but also in global terms, why one might (coughs) want to think that? Well, the reason why, as Jeffrey mentions, in the literature and political philosophy, philosophers have focused on the nation state is that they thought there is a particular kind of coercive pressure that the nation state exercises relative to its citizens, which which um, creates a justificatory problem that just doesn't arise outside of the scopes of that state. But that's not so clear anymore today. There are global governance organizations which uh, exert a huge pressure on uh, people all around the globe. So these, this asymmetry seems to at least weaken, even if, of course, we uh, still have nothing that compares to a nation state at the global level. Um, so how does the question of the relationship between morals and politics translate to the global level if we accept that there is a problem of legitimacy also at the global level. And I want to use the example of human rights to suggest that even in the global context, we can work with an idea of political morality. And the idea is the following. Traditionally, human rights have been thought of as moral rights. There's a long tradition um, of thinking about human rights along those lines. So we are born with certain innate rights, and the list of human rights that we find is just the expression of those things. But there's an alternative interpretation of human rights, and that's a political interpretation of human rights. On that view, what's distinctive about human rights, at least post-Universal Declaration, is that Many states around the globe have come together and agreed on a set of norms they think they can work, um, uh, they can use as the basis for working together. 
So on that political conception, human, right, human, human rights are part of a political morality globally speaking, and can figure as a benchmark in decisions about the legitimacy of different states. So it has been suggested that questions of external legitimacy, how states should relate to each other as opposed to internal legitimacy, how a state should relate to its citizens, can be settled in terms of human rights. A state that violates human rights is a state that falls out of favor uh, in the global community of states and there will be some appropriate sanctions. So that would be the take on global legitimacy parallel to um, how people have thought about legitimacy in the, national st- in the nation state and important for the topic here today without falling back just on some uh, moral notion but still understanding even global legitimacy as a distinctively political project. Thank you very much. Let's continue the conversation. Yes. I think we didn't talk about uh, something that for me is important when we talk about morality. It's the example, because uh, we, we talk about politics and uh, this uh, about morality, but I think that what basically gives a meaningful of morality is the example. And uh, all in every kind of field, in politics or in uh, industry or in teaching, uh, I think morality is very linked to the example. So at the end of the day, uh, it's very important how the people behave in their role, in their job, in order to make a judgment on the morality. Thank you. Yes. Okay, so um, I have two really quick questions. One is, um, what's the significance of disagreement? Is it that... Um, Disagreement means we just don't know what the truth about the moral truth is? Or is it that when disagreement is so deep, it's somehow offensive or illegitimate to impose some truth, even if we do know it, on other people? And the second question is um, just trying to kind of probe at the distinctiveness of um, Steve's political morality. So I could think of an example where, in a personal life, where you might have to dirty your hands as well. So say I have two friends, those friends are married, um, friend A cheats on friend B, I've promised to friend B that, or I've promised to friend A that I wouldn't tell friend B, but I also have an obligation to friend B to tell her the truth. Um, so is the idea of um, dirtying your hands particularly political? Um, and kind of stemming from that, isn't a political morality just a kind of particular instantiation of morality in a particular role? So there might be a kind of medical morality or a kind of legal morality or a kind of armed forces morality. And aren't those moralities just informed by universal morals that underpin each of them? So if you could take a kind of deeper level, you could say, well, um, politicians are kind of carers and, or something. I don't know. You know there's, a, there's something valuable about, being, about that role and those are kind of values that inhere in that role. Um, and you could say something similar for all sorts of different roles. Um, so there's nothing really that special about politics. There was one before you. Then, yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry, behind. I have to take them in order. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry if it's a bit of a fundamental question and it probably would have fitted better in the first set. 
But I'm wondering what subset of normativity you're talking about when you're talking about morality here. Because at the beginning of the conversation, everyone seemed relatively comfortable with the idea of talking about the way that the state ought to behave in a sort of pre-moral context when it's not stable enough, say. And that seems, to my mind, you know, a clear ought category of, um, of statement. It's not descriptive. Um, so we would be talking about what the state ought to be doing in a situation where there's a lot of danger, say. So we're saying they ought to be protecting people rather than worrying about whatever more detailed moral issues were. But you were talking about that as a, uh, a non-moral issue, and I just wondered if any of you would be happy to talk a bit about w what sense you're using morality in and whether you see it's different from ethics. Eh? Right. Thank you very much. Yes. First of all, uh, Catherine, I was at UEA many, many years ago, and welcome, and I'm very impressed with what you said, but you didn't mention anything about green issues. Big problem. Now, if you're going to get elected, there's a question about being elected and acting in government, both moral questions, I think. Obviously, it's very difficult to tell the electorate that there's no money, and what we're talking about is the tip of the iceberg, and now we're going to spend a very small amount of money. It's just moving the deck chairs. We're not telling them that we're in a lot of debt, and we're also not telling them about the real priorities and what they should be from a moral point of view, one of which is obviously the planet, which very few people are wanting to talk about, and human rights and world affairs and what's going on in the Middle East and so on and so forth. They're talking about you know, whether they should fiddle around with right to buy and all this stuff, which is very minor. Um, but you can't tell them the truth, really, because um, they won't vote for you. So, but you do have to perhaps talk about priorities and the other question that you brought up, which you've all brought up, really, which is the greater good. Um, uh, Stephen's talked about the... Um, sorry, is it Stephen? Yes. You talked about the, the question of um, doing something which, um, on the face of it, looks immoral, but there may be a, a, um, an overarching reason why you have to take those decisions, and you can't tell the population what you're doing because... Um, that reveals too much. You have to keep it in secret. And, of course, in the end, everybody's a bit upset. And they, they say that you've, um, you've done something very immoral, but, in fact, perhaps you haven't. But, anyway, I'd like your comments on, on the question about, really, all of you, um, the question about not is politics based on morality, but how could politics be based more on morality? Thank you very much. One more, and then we'll come to the answers again. Yes, at the back, right at the top. Well, as I see it, we're quite caught in a muddle here because both politics and morality are, in the end, human artifacts. They've come about through human history. And it's very difficult to disentangle them. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, what I've heard are still attempts on the panel to, well, use not ideal types, but certainly versions that try to um, 
well, single out a core of what is political and a core of what is moral and try to say, look, this is a, falls into morality, whereas this falls into politics. I would um, just sort of suggest, we could also ask the question, is morality based on politics, for example? And this makes it clear that whatever we're talking about actually is talking about how we, as agents, political and moral, try to reshape the way that politics and morality are linked when they're always interlinked, no matter what we do. And it is, in fact, something that is political, moral, the way that we, in the end, come up with our um, way of shaping their, their relationship. Thank you very much. A series of uh, rather more abstract questions and uh, we only have 25, uh, 26 minutes to go, and therefore perhaps they have to be uh, sharpened and just a little bit reduced. Uh, as I hear them, perhaps again in, in, in the best order in which they might be addressed, first of all, there are levels of moral seriousness or moral urgency uh, that we've alluded to in, uh, collectively in this conversation, but not perhaps emphasized. Going all the way from protecting people's lives to giving them uh, more or less active opportunities for what might be described as very discretionary options in their lives. I have a view about that, but so I know to my colleagues, and I will ask them in a moment. The, the second issue is what do we do about moral disagreements, which I think was what you were asking. I'm not sure that there's anything more to be said than... There are hard choices, and if possible, discussions that produce uh, a, a convergent answer. But if any of my others on the platform have a view, but yes. I will pass. I will pass on another one. You'll pass on another one. <laughs> and the uh, the last question, no small question: What can be done? Uh, and we'll come to that uh, last. But, so perhaps, first of all, who would like to talk about levels of moral seriousness, perhaps? That's, um, moral disagreement? Do you want to talk? Well, well uh, as I understood it, there was, a, there was a question about that we've been alluding, but not explicitly uh, unpacking, a sense of the more and less serious moral questions in politics. All the way from protecting a body of people from death to giving them, as I say, the opportunity for various discretionary routes which uh, are not in any sense life-threatening and might be life-enhancing, but uh, unless I misunderstood the question. Um, <coughs> we may or may not want to talk about levels of morality. Uh, I'm not sure we have much more to say about disagreements, but there is something you would like to say, which I obviously haven't thought of, uh, and then we'll come to your questions.
question, which is a large one, comes naturally at the end. I say something about moral disagreement. Okay. Um, uh, the questions you were asking me about uh, dirty hands and, and moral disagreements, I, I think the, the thing to say about dirty hands is that it's uh, a way of understanding a part of our moral reality which uh, gets thrown up every now and again uh, in our normal course of life. So what happens is we, we have values, different values competing uh, for our attention, and sometimes these values clash. Now, they, they, they can clash if you're a pluralist because values are just very different. They can either clash, they can also clash if you're a, a monist about value because you've got, say, a Kantian view or a utilitarian view, and they clash. The point is that the world throws up these kinds of clashes where whatever you decide to do, you're going to end up with some kind of moral residue on your hands. Some kind of tragic situation is going to arise. Um, and you were quite right when you asked, does that happen in your private life? And the answer is yes, of course it does. What's interesting about politics is that it seems to throw up those kinds of scenarios with much more frequency and a much greater level of seriousness than in your private life. You mentioned that issue about a friend uh, who's being and, you know, cheated on or unfaithful or whatever, and you have to lie to them and so on. All that's true, and that happens all the time in our lives. But the really serious dirty hand scenarios occur in politics because matters of life and death are often involved in that. So they become part of what politicians have to face if they're going to be effective rulers. Uh, and it becomes part of what we can understand as a political morality, as a way in which... Uh, Politicians understand that with the best of wills, they're going to have to at some point get their hands dirty. They're going to have to do things which the rest of us might think was either shabby or downright morally incorrect or wrong or even disgusting. And it, it runs across that continuum. Now, we hope that most of the time our politicians won't do things that we think are disgusting, but we accept that most of the time they're going to do things that are shabby. Uh, you know, most of the time they make deals that you don't like. Most of the time they renege on their friends in a way that we would think was just not acceptable in real friendship. Think of Tony Blair dropping uh, Peter Mandelson twice. Uh, this is the man that got him into power and was his kind of, you know, his eminence grease, his Machiavelli on the side. And when it was a problem, he just dropped him straight away. That's what politicians do, and that's part of a political morality. That's part of the kind of dirty hand scenario that you see. Um, I just want to leave you with a thought that Michael Walser says, we want politicians to be good, but not too good. And what he means by that is we want them to be good people so they're not going to abuse us, they're not going to do terrible things to us, but we want, don't want them to be so good, and he means by that moral, that when they have to do things like make shabby compromises or protect us from danger, they just can't do it because their morality stops them from doing that. And that's the... Sorry? Yeah, so I was going to come on to that. So, so is, it, is it a role morality? Yes, the answer to that I think is right. But, but there are significant differences between lawyers and teachers and others and politicians. Politicians act on a much wider stage. They act in our name in a way that, that lawyers don't. Lawyers work in terms of our instruction. Politicians are representatives. So they decide for us on our behalf. Uh, once we've elected them, we can't stop them from deciding against what we wish. They're not, in a sense, delegates. <coughs> so in that sense, a much more, bigger moral stage and much more important that they have a morality, a political morality that we think is acceptable before we elect them. 
Uh, be at levels of moral importance, moral seriousness. It was the first part of your question, right, which, I, if I understood it correctly, was what, what is the significance of this agreement? Why do we care at all about uh, disagreements? And I want to um, say it's on epistemic grounds that disagreements matter, as they do also in non-moral contexts. So suppose, um, to give you an example from a non-moral context, you and a friend are in a restaurant, you just had dinner, and you normally split the bill. Normally that goes fine. That particular evening, you say 24, we each 24 pounds, um, your friend says 28. What should you do? You should probably suspend, suspend belief. You thought you knew it was 24, but the disagreement with your friend, given that normally you trust the friend's judgment, gives you reason to suspend belief. That's an epistemic significance of disagreement. I think something similar goes on in the moral context as well. When we find ourselves in disagreements about moral matters with people who we don't think are completely mad, um, that their judgment gives us reason to, if not suspend belief, at least reduce confidence in our own moral beliefs. That doesn't mean we stop feeling strongly about the matter, but we realize that perhaps matters are not as straightforward as we thought. Okay? So there's an epistemic response that's warranted. Um, and that gets you, that is, these are the circumstances, as I see them, which induce people to then find other grounds, political grounds for agreement, as opposed to just rely on their original moral beliefs. Okay, so um, I've been challenged to say something that has some vague relevance to my standing for the Green Party. Um, so uh, one of the things that I think is really very interesting is the um, epistemic difficulty that people have with coming to terms with a different picture of what they thought was morally right or wrong. From uh, so So... What I have in mind is this, that if you suddenly discover that climate change is a real threat to the world and you care about the state of other people's lives on, in other countries and in your own country, uh, and you're suddenly faced with the prospect that things that you thought that negative freedom allowed you, liberty to drive a car or, or, or whatever is no longer legitimated by the thought that I'm doing no harm to anybody else by doing this, it's actually quite difficult for people to come to terms with a reassessment of what uh, is morally permitted then. Um, and one of the things that I've noticed in campaigning is that people who have not listened to any Green Party um, political um, speeches or, or propaganda, uh, have the assumption that what we're saying is we are banning you from, we're, we're, being, uh, we're imposing some kind of authoritarian morality because they understand that what they have traditionally thought was okay is now turning out not to be okay. So it's actually extremely difficult to get people to see that what we're asking them to see is that they don't want to do, that we want to offer them something that they would prefer to do because it's the more moral thing. So we want to enable a different kind of approach to life that would not then be a threat to other people. So they assume that what we're saying is we're going to ban these things when actually what we're saying is 
we're going to enable an alternative society in which those things are no longer your only way of doing something. <coughs> what are we doing there? We're, so, so, in a sense, uh, other, you might say, well, other parties are maybe concealing something that needs to be on the horizon because they know people will feel uncomfortable with it. So you can make people feel more comfortable either by not acknowledging where the big threat is or by pretending that there isn't any money or by uh, um, implying that uh, it's perfectly okay to go on as it was before without challenging people's moral assumptions. So this is an area in which it seems to me that people's uh, existing moral practices have to be reassessed in the light of what counts as a threat to other people. <coughs> and politics has a duty to present the case to the people and try and help them to come to a decision about what they ought to do. And it's important that the politicians should be honest about it. And I think that's where the Green Party is trying to be more honest about the climate threat and why it generates denial from other people who would rather that wasn't a big threat, and why the Green Party is trying to be more honest about what the source of the debt is and whether it matters, like whether it, you should take it out on benefit claimants, for example, or immigrants, or whether actually they are not the source of the financial problem, but something else is if there's a financial problem at all, which is possibly just being created. So, so there is an issue there about the honesty with which the politicians present their um, case, the reasons for recommending their policies. So if I'm right, what we're all trying to do is present our vision of how the country might be and some reasons for rational people to assess whether the vision that we're offering is the right one, those are all morally motivated and politically motivated and expediency motivated and whatever else in order to try to get the best that we can get in the future. But it does depend upon a certain morality on the part of the politician because you can't, you haven't got legitimacy if the people have made a decision not based on partial or inadequate information or lacking the ability to make the moral judgment for whatever epistemic reasons are holding them back and causing them to deny certain threats that you feel are genuinely threats that should be taken into consideration. I don't know whether that was a coherent response, but, but it seems to me that there's, there are moral requirements on the politician presenting that case and moral requirements on what makes a citizen capable of making a valuable judgment uh, based on proper information and a, and a sound ability to make moral judgments that affect their own um, benefits. Thank you, Catherine, very much. We're not yet at the end, another 10, 11, 12 minutes to go. But at this point, I thought perhaps it might be useful, at least uh, for one person in a unreasonably privileged position, i.e. me, to give a, a sense of where I think we've got to, so that in the last ten minutes or so, uh, 
people can disagree. I think almost everybody here, speaking, of course, for a large number of you who've not, uh, who've not spoken, accepts that the moral is important in politics, that it's not a wholly amoral affair. I accept that there are one or two views of the opposite kind, but that seems to be the general view. Second, in answer to the question about whether the moral is prior to the political or the political prior to the moral, I get the sense that few want to jump one way or the other, that the two are inextricably connected. I mean, they have been for generations, for decades, for centuries, and they continue to be. Thirdly, however, that it is important to think not just about moral ends which might be pursued in politics, as distinct from elsewhere, but also for something called political morality. Uh, pay attention also to something called political morality itself. <clears throat> And that is very distinctive in that to behave well, as general morality might regard it in politics, requires one every so often to behave badly, as it would be regarded elsewhere. Fourthly, it's nevertheless the case, something that's been pressed from various quarters, that we don't think hard enough about the moral ends of politics. And one reason for that, just one reason, is that there is insufficient information about how to do so, particularly from politicians themselves and, I would add, uh, politically excited media, which neither, gives, neither give enough information nor, in the rough and tumble of competitive readership and competitive electoral politics more generally, nor are altogether honest. <clears throat> if I may say so, whether speaking from 30 years ago as... Catherine described Bernie Williams doing at the very beginning of this, this evening, or whether speaking now, this is a set of very English responses. Uh, <laughs> the moral is important to politics. Uh, the political is not prior to the moral. The moral is not prior to the political. The two have to uh, constantly be uh, held it in the mind together. There is a distinct political morality that is necessarily a little edgy, but should be no edgier than is necessary. Meanwhile, we should think harder uh, morally. Um, that may be to some extent uh, a function of laziness, but also it's a function of poor information and a certain dishonesty in the public prints and the political class. 
Uh, nothing at all extreme has come out this evening. Uh, no radical view. But if I, as it were, uh, present it in this challengingly limp way as English common sense about the relationship between morals and politics, perhaps I can excite somebody to disagree. Yes. Yes, <coughs> back. Okay, I remember. I have just one comment on Steve's dirty hands thesis and a question for the panel. I hope the question is provocative. Um, Steve, with regard to dirty hands, every example you gave us was one in which at the end of the story we all thought, quite rightly so, that was the right call. <laughs> so in other words, it looks, you know, you are disobeying a norm that you wouldn't normally disobey. But overriding that norm in this case, because it's such an important topic, uh, was ethically okay. So your conclusion that these politicians are shabby, I thought was rather unfair. Politicians often are shabby, but that's when they're not doing what they should be. In other words, when they're not being properly virtuous. Uh, and in these cases where the dirty hands uh, scenario comes into play, quite often... Uh, very complicated ethical decision, and they quite often make exactly the right. Uh... My question to the panel is this one. <clears throat> is the way the discussion has gone this evening, it sounded as if uh, ethics and morality has to do with what happens here and now and local. My question is, isn't it the case that nowadays nearly all the really pressing issues, are, uh, ethical issues, are international ones, ones to do with human rights, foreign wars, asylum seekers, refugees, on global terror, the use of drones. There are an enormous number of those, whereas back home, the political issues are more or less ethically uncontentious. It's just trading between how much you're going to spend on wealth and health, you know, and sort of political trade. Uh, political. the bigger ethical issues to my mind, seem to be international, and I wonder if the... Thank you very much. Somebody in... Some, sorry, but somebody in the middle. Well, they've disappeared, yes. And then, yeah. yeah. I think really one of the key problems that I, I don't think the, really d the debates touched on, particularly as a first-time voter, is it's quite easy to portray political morality, particularly from the perspective of someone who's voting for the first time, as this blank canvas. And the problem really from someone who's new to politics and trying to get into politics is the fact that it really isn't. And the reason I think, for the, I think um, this is, is that we have this kind of economic leviathan that's sort of lying in the background. And constantly when I want to try and judge a party's policy on, any, on anything really, there's the constant jibe back, oh, you can't fund it. And then it goes into party back and forth, political back and forth, oh, yeah, you can't fund it. Well, yes, we can. And what I really want to see from parties is more 
focus of applying morality and don't just tell me, oh yeah, we need to cut the deficit, we need to spend in these sort of departments. Tell me why. Tell um, Tell me, for example, oh well, we need austerity because we need economic growth, but don't end it there. Tell me, oh, we need economic growth to improve the lives of people. And the problem that I find at the moment, particularly with um, politicians, is I don't really know who I should believe because we've found people have... Politicians have just constantly been proven to betray us. And I'm not sure whether I should believe the Conservatives who tell me, oh, well, we're going to cut it, it's going to improve the lives of people. And on the one hand, I say, well, that's not really true because because if this was true, then everyone would be voting for you, and of course they're not. I'm not sure whether I should vote vote Labour because on the one hand, I agree with a lot of their saying, but I'm intimidated at the same time by this economic background where I'm I'm worried that somehow voting for Labour is setting us on the course for ruin. And so I'd really like to find a political system that's less sort of dug down in this economic background, this economic... well, re- uh, this economic background that makes me worry less about it and think more about the morality of politics and the morality of policy. Why is this right? Why, rather than the, rather, why is this economically viable? Thank you. And one last question. Yeah. Uh, I don't really have a question, but I was kind of musing while while you were speaking on on the idea that uh, possibly Thatcher was the last government to have an electoral mandate. And government after governments since have pursued domestic and foreign policy agendas, which have had, which no one has voted for. And uh, I just wondered if that's a cause for concern for anybody. Yes. I'm afraid we must uh, draw, it, draw it to a close now. There are really four <coughs> four issues that have come up in that last. Uh, that last set of questions. Uh, our discussion of dirty hands, which I'll ask Stephen about in a moment. The question about whether the really uh, morally pressing issues are ones of, of, of extremes that don't, don't really bear on us domestically, international issues of refugees, asylum, uh, and so forth. Uh, the question of the financial constraints and the part they, they play in uh, political discussion, particularly in this election, and uh, the whole question of what our governments get up to uh, overseas uh, that we haven't necessarily uh, agreed to or even heard about before the event. Uh, Stephen, I'm afraid we have to be now very, very quick. quick. Okay, but just to respond to, to Mervyn up there. Um, Yes, I did use examples where the decision overall was the, brought about the better scenario. But, of course, you can often make these decisions which end up not coming. And that's when you still have dirt in your hands and you've got the worst of both worlds. You've compromised your values and you didn't achieve what you wanted. And Judith Sklar famously said that, uh, you know, uh, you, when someone said you've got to break eggs to make an omelette, she said, yeah, but you can make a lot of, break a lot of eggs and not make an omelette. And in this particular case, you can end up getting your hands dirty and not achieve what you want to achieve. And that's the tragic element of it. That's the part of it which says, uh, as a politician, you're going to get dirt in your hands, you're going to morally compromise yourself, and sometimes it won't even be for the best kind of outcome. Um, and the shabby bit that you want to talk about, it's a shabby compromise, not from the perspective of the politician, it's a shabby compromise from the perspective of us, who judge them in terms of a general morality rather than a political one. 
That's it. As far as the other three uh, subjects are concerned, aren't, aren't, the, aren't the, the more extreme moral issues those uh, beyond our shores? <coughs> what part is the argument about financial constraints playing in general, particularly in this election? And what about uh, the foreign actions of governments that uh, we elect largely on platforms that don't refer to uh, overseas affairs at all. I think that the point about extremes, of course, is, is forceful. All sorts of horrible things are happening elsewhere in the world that aren't happening here. I nevertheless think that... Pardon? Should I say something on that? Okay. Uh, I would just add that... the political argument that, that I find most persuasive is a negative argument rather than a positive one that the first thing that collective action should be dedicated to is reducing and eliminating people's fears and of course the fears, the level of fear in this country is not the level of fear of uh, somebody coming from Mali and trying to get across the Mediterranean to southern Italy but I think there's a, a very great deal of fear in those who simply don't have enough money to house themselves and feed their children and so forth. And that seems to me a genuine fear and a fear of the fear that that will go on. On financial constraints, I entirely agree with you uh, that there is a a ritual litany um, with no comparative information at all. So, for example, Britain's financial situation, its deficit and its debts are incomparably smaller than those, say, of Japan, whose social policies are in many ways more generous than ours. Uh, the question is, how big, how big a debt do you want to live with? And you can live with a debt for a very long time if you're a potentially strong economy. We're sixth in the world. We could go into great debts and not suffer for a very long time. Uh, you may take that as a politically biased answer but uh, (laughs) I think it's a fact and as far as foreign affairs are concerned well perhaps I'll ask Catherine Uh, I was just going to say that in terms of the um, uh, the idea that the biggest problems are um, overseas and, and global and so on I think that it's a mistake to think that our internal politics don't have any effect on those things. And I think we actually need to be very careful of, uh, uh, about what policies we have that are affecting those, including, for example, the pursuit of fossil fuels uh, and other um, things that, that generate problems in parts of the world and, and are... Um, creation of a war zone possibly related to the idea that that, that we have nuclear weapons right so we move the wars off our own territory and into parts of the world where they don't have nuclear weapons and you can safely fight a war at the expense of various other people so there are all sorts of things about our internal decisions um, that are uh, somewhat to blame for some of the the uh, crises that we do see elsewhere, um, uh, not to mention the pretense that we can't afford to borrow money. Uh, 
And in the sense as we're democratically implicated in those decisions, we can say we all have dirty hands, to give a good example, perhaps. There we must end. You may all have dirty hands, but you've been, uh, you've been a very, very, very good audience, very good questions. Uh, thoroughly enjoyable hour and a half. And if you would uh, thank my colleagues. I think.